All right, let me hear you. Happy Easter. All right, all right. What a great day, great day. So we've had, we've had a great, uh, this is our sixth service. God has been good. We've seen people t- taking huge steps toward Christ in the process. Listen, we're here to celebrate Easter, but in order for us to fully appreciate Easter, we have to recognize that Easter was not the beginning of the Easter season. Good Friday is the beginning of the Easter season. For us, what we need to remember is that we use this phrase, Good Friday, but in the first century, the idea of what was happening and what was taking place on Good Friday, the fact that Jesus' death was front and central was not a good thing. In fact, many of his disciples lost hope. Many of the people around Jerusalem and Galilee began to lose hope. They began to look at Jesus as somebody of a disappointment. In fact, for three days, Jesus sat in the tomb. And as he sat in that tomb, people's expectations of him began to change. And so what I want to look at right now is I'm going to do something different. Uh, if you come to Easter every Easter, you hear the same passages from Luke and John, and it's about the empty tomb, and it's about the angels that are sitting there, and it's about Mary, and it's about John and Peter, and how Peter runs faster than John, or John runs faster than Peter. And it's about all those wonderful things, and it's good. Those are great stories. But what I want to do is I want to zero in on something a little bit different. I want to zero in on one of Jesus' disciples that was particularly perturbed, particularly undone by Jesus' death. His name is Thomas. And Thomas is uh, an incredible man. Thomas goes on to do amazing things for God. In fact, um, he goes on into India and all the Christians that you, you see in India today, which are innumerable Christians in India today and all throughout Asia, they're there because Thomas planted the gospel uh, back in those days. But Thomas kind of has a bad rap. If you, even if you're not a church person, you've heard the phrase uh, doubting Thomas before, right? And that phrase comes from this guy, Thomas. And it's for three days, three days of his life he doubts. I'm always thinking to myself, I wonder what Thomas is like like right now in heaven, like, really guys? Like, this is what you remember me for? I lived this whole life, sacrificed myself, brought tens of millions of people to Christ, but for three days I lost hope, and you call me Doubting Thomas. It doesn't seem very fair, but nonetheless, we're going to look at the doubts that Thomas experienced, because I think we go through some of these same kinds of things. Well, it started with Jesus being hung on a tree, and there was an early Jewish idea. And the early Jewish idea was that if you were really from God, then God would bless your life. In other words, good people get good things and bad people get bad things. It's really more like karma. It's really more of a Hindu concept than it is a, a Christian concept. But in the early church, they kind of, in the early Judaism, they kind of believed this way. And so one day they see Jesus and he's this rabbi and he's going around and he's performing miracle after miracle after miracle. He's doing incredible things, all of these things in plain sight of every, everybody. It's not like he performs a miracle and it's hidden in some corner in a back room and then some Somebody talks to somebody and his friend heard something from his neighbor's uh, lost uncle who told them about Jesus doing something. This is right out there in the middle of everything. Everybody can see these miracles that Jesus is doing. And then one day, the Jewish leaders who really didn't like Jesus a whole lot because he was pulling disciples away from them and they were losing power and authority and money. And so basically they stuck him up on a cross. And unfortunately, they stuck him between these two thieves. And as they stuck Jesus between these two thieves, people looked at Jesus and said, if he was really from God, then how and how and how could God treat him this way? And therefore, he must not be from God. And so the disciples were hearing this and everyone around Judea, all around Jerusalem, they were hearing this entire like negativity about who Jesus was. And the disciples themselves began to believe it. Why? Because here's what they did. They believed, they believed that Jesus was a kind of George Washington figure for them of their day. And what do I mean by that? They believed that Jesus had come to be first and foremost a politician who would free them from religious rule by the, occupati- by the occupating ar- um, occupying army of Rome over Jerusalem. And he was also going to be a general who would raise up a group of people together and they would war against Rome and push them out so that they can have their own city once and once again. And this is what they expected of Jesus. He was performing these miracles. But here's the problem. God sent Jesus into the world 
to free us, yes, but not from political problems and immediate needs. He came to solve a problem for us spiritually. And that was that he wanted us to change our hearts and change our minds. He wanted us to have a relationship with him that would then impact our past and then impact our entire future in such a way that ultimately we would have the promise of salvation, the promise of heaven in the future. This is why at this church all the time, we say there's no reason for you to be completely negative all the time. Why? Because There is good ahead for you if you're a Christian. It doesn't matter if this whole life is hard. There is good ahead because resurrection awaits. Now listen, in order for us to get to resurrection, we have to go through death. And because of that, it caused a lot of problems to the disciples and people. It was this. The problem was they had expectations of Jesus that were unmet. You see, for most of us, this is really the problem. The problem is not evidence. I'm going to go through some evidence in just a minute, but I just want you to notice, like, you can go online right now, and I'm not talking about some random person who writes things about Jesus. Hey, I know a blogger. She's my cousin's sister, and she writes about Jesus. You know, no, no. Like, you should go and look at scholarly work and do your research on who Jesus is because there's so much historicity about the person of Jesus. Listen, the only reason you truly believe in George Washington is not because you have eyewitness accounts of him. You don't know him. You You've never seen him. You've not experienced him before, but we have his writings, and we have people who said they saw him, and we have all of these things. We have those exact same things for Jesus. We have his things that he said written down, writings, eyewitness accounts, both both Christian and non-Christian, secular and Jewish. People have been recording his miracles in the first century all the time because he made such a stir. The problem with most people is not evidence. It really isn't. It's not the question of evidence in our hearts as to whether we're going to believe in God. The problem with us is always expectations, because here's what it is. We're kind of walking along life, and this is what happens to us. We're walking along life, and everything's good, everything's good, and all of a sudden, boom, we just hit this block in life. And we hit this block in life, we think to ourselves, well, certainly, here's some things that I could have done wrong, but you know what, God? Here's what you should have done. You should have changed the circumstances, moved this block in front of me. You should have done something that would have allowed me to be okay. You should have watched over me. And because God didn't perform according to our standards, because God didn't live up to our expectations, we kind of closed off to him. We began to close our eyes and close our ears and say, if you're going to treat me this way, God, then I don't want anything to do with you. Well, this is exactly what happens to Thomas. Thomas sees Jesus die and all of his dreams of a new city, a new world in which Jesus would be inaugurating a new kingdom in which maybe Thomas would even, because he was close to Jesus, Jesus have a very important part in it. It all goes downhill. Jesus, for three days, and in three days, and I'm not trying to be graphic here, but for three days, in, G, in the tomb, Jesus' internal organs begin to liquefy in three days. His skin becomes detached. It loosens from his body. And so they did not think that he was going to have any chance of coming back. His disciples lost hope, but there was no reason for it. They had all the evidence in the world, all the evidence in the world, but here's the truth. Three days is a long time to suffer. And I know that sounds ridiculous, but three days after finding out that your daughter is sick with terminal cancer is a long time to suffer. Three days of that phrase, stage four, is a long time. Three days after he comes home from you and says, I don't love you anymore and I don't want to be married to you anymore is a long time. Three days is a long time when, when, when uh, your business goes bankrupt and everything falls apart and you think, I'll never be able to land where I thought I was going to land ever again. What pain does is it takes us from this really big picture of our life and it makes us focused myopically. Now what it takes us to, it makes us egocentric. We begin to look at ourselves and go, this pain is problematic. It's never, ever going to be fixed. But again, our problem is expectations, not evidence. Let me give you some evidence that that Jesus and the disciples had. Here it is. The disciples had enough evidence to believe in Jesus. The problem wasn't evidence. It was expectations. 
The disciples were with Jesus at the first wedding in Cana of Galilee, in which Jesus, when they ran out of wine, turns water into wine. It's a neat trick. He does this incredible thing. People are like, wow, check that out. Look what Jesus did. One day, a rich man comes to Jesus, and he says, hey, my son is just undone. He's got stage four cancer. He's going to be dead. No, no question about it. Jesus, can you do anything about it? I've heard that you can do something. And Jesus takes this boy, and he heals this son. All of a sudden, now the son's living a, a, a life that's full and rich. There was this pool of water where, in the Bible, the story goes that, that a, uh, an angel would stir the waters, and there were all of these poor people, and there were all these sick people that would sit around it. And every once in a while, when somebody jumped in the water, when the angel stirred the water, they'd be healed. And there was called the, it's called the Pool of Bethsaida. And Jesus came to this pool, and he saw this guy who was just, he was just paralyzed. He'd try to push himself into the pool, and somebody would jump right in front of him. So here's Jesus. He's walking around, all these people. He's pushing them away. I know you got needs. I know you got needs. I know you got needs. He takes this one guy, and he says, all right, I know that you've been paralyzed your entire life. What I'm going to do is I'm going to love you right now. He says, come with me. And this man is paralyzed, walks with him, and he walks with them away. In front of all these other people, these eyewitness accounts was taking place, and the disciples who were there right there watching this entire thing take place. One day, Jesus is teaching on the hillside, and there's 5,000 people who have gathered around. He was popular at this point in time in his ministry. And as a result, um, he realized that, like, you know, there's no way that we're going to be able to feed all these people, right? And the Uber Eats wasn't there. And so they decided, like, here's what we're going to do. Like, we're going to, like, who's got some food? I got some bread. I got some fish. And so he started tearing the bread. And before he knew it, he had torn all that was necessary in order for 5,000 people to be fed. It was miraculous. One day, the disciples and all these disciples, these guys were fishermen. They were salty guys. They were tough men. One time, they're out in the Sea of Galilee, and there's Jesus in the distance. They're like, what is that? You know, is that a fish? What's that? And then Jesus, he's like, hey, guys, I missed the boat. And he's walking on water, you know, and he's just coming out to see him. Peter gets so excited. The disciples, he just jumps out into the water, right? And he starts walking on the water until he takes his eyes off of Jesus. And he's like, oh, I'm walking on water. And, you know, he goes down into the water, right? There was a healing of a man who was born blind. Two weeks before Jesus was hung on the cross, he showed up um, to some friends of his three days late for his friend who had died. And Jesus comes to, to, to the city, and his sisters are like, where were you? We, we, we hear you've, you've healed blind people and paralytics. Our brother was suffering. You love him. You love Lazarus. Where were you, Jesus? Why didn't you solve this problem? Mary, Calm down. Martha, calm down. And he walks up to the tomb three days. It's a long time to be in pain. And he walks up to the tomb and he says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus, who's wrapped already and embalmed with like 150 pounds of ceremonially um, cleansed wrappings and aloe and all of that stuff just walks out and starts ripping the stuff off. And people who were believers of his were there and they were, mer- they were amazed. People who were not believers of his and then were believers of his were there. And people who were just not believers were there. And they watched him walk right out of the tomb. Evidence was not the problem of the disciples at all. Like they had all the, you would believe Jesus. If Jesus had done these things, one moment a man comes up to him and he's possessed with demons. And Jesus is like, who are you? And he's like, we're 5,000. 5,000 demons in this person. You can't even imagine what was going on in that person's life. And Jesus says, get out. It's not like the exorcist. There was no spinning heads. There was no vomit. He simply said, all right, just get out. And these demons flew out. And they went into some pigs and they ran right off the cliff. They killed them. It was incredible what took place. 
God, in the form of Jesus, had the power over nature, he had the power over evil, he had the power of life and death. And the disciples walked with Jesus and saw all of this. They saw it all. Until that day, when they thought God had sent Jesus to be George Washington for them, to be a general, to raise up an army so that they can throw off Roman leadership, to be a politician who would come in and say, I've got the right words for the right circumstances right now. But the Father had sent Jesus for another reason, and that was to liberate and free our souls so that our circumstances would no longer be binding on us because our hearts would be free. And it was the expectations of everybody on Jesus that ended up hurting them. Why? Because they looked at Jesus and they said, Jesus, Jesus, you, you were supposed to do this for me. And now he's in the grave. He's in a tomb. John chapter 20, the book of John that we're looking at, it'll be up on the screen. The book of John that we're talking about right now is written by Jesus' best friend in this life. His name was John. It's for his namesake. This is what it says. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So he kind of proves to them, it's me. And it's not just some guy, right? Okay, but here's, what, here's what's crazy. It says here that the Jews were in the upper room, right? For fear. Why were they afraid? Well, but their, their leader, Jesus, had just been hung on a cross. The religious leaders were now looking for them. They gathered together, all of them except for Thomas. Thomas is not here. We'll talk about that in a second. But all of them are gathered together in this upper room, the 11 of them. They're gathered. They're afraid. They lock the door. They don't want anyone to know they're there. They don't want anyone to see them. They want to be apart from everyone because they're afraid. And then Jesus, it's not really very clear in this text right here because it's in the English, but in the Greek, it's very, very clear that there's a connection between the idea of them locking the door and the fact that Jesus just comes into the room. So in some way, Jesus has been resurrected from the dead now. His body still bears the, the wounds and the scars, but it's different now. It's not like our body because in the original language here, it says that he walks right through the door. It's locked and he walks right through the door. And his first words to them are, peace be with you. I don't think so. Like you just walked through the door. We thought you were dead. Like you just walked through the door. I don't think I'm in peace right now. This is not right. And I have to tell you that it's extraordinary the way that Jesus responds to these guys because I wouldn't respond this way. Why? Because Jesus walks in after they've abandoned him at the cross. Here they are hiding and afraid of everything that's taking place. But right before this, Jesus is hanging on a cross by himself. All these disciples who witnessed evidence is never our problem. It's always our expectations. But evidence, they had seen over and over and over again, all the evidence that was necessary in order to believe. But when it came down to it and Jesus was on the cross and they took those crown of thorns and they put them on his head and jammed it down on him and they cursed at him and they yelled at him and they spit on him and they beat him. And they did all this. And where were the disciples? They were gone. They were hiding from one another. And then Jesus walks into the room and he says, peace be with you. I, I don't think I'd feel very peaceful. And I wonder even sometimes how Peter even stayed connected because Jesus had told Peter before he went to the cross, he says, Peter, I know you love me, man. I know that when I was walking on the water, you stepped out. I know that when I was arrested in the garden of Gethsemane, you pulled out a sword and cut off that soldier's, soldier's ear. I know that you're the first one all the time, but you need to know this, Peter. You are going to reject me three times. And Peter goes, no, 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 what? I'm not going to do that. Are you kidding me? Like, that's not who I am. I'm a follower. I'm a disciple. I'll die for you. 
And Jesus is like, but will you live for me? And then all of a sudden, here's what happens. Jesus is put on this cross between these two thieves, thieves, and everyone's gone. But Peter's in the distance. He's in the background, and he's looking. He's look, he, like, there's Jesus on Golgotha up on the hill overlooking the city, and there's Peter in the background, and he's looking. He's going, I wonder, like, is he okay? And, one, and, and a person in the crowd goes, hey, aren't you one of Jesus' disciples? And Peter goes, me? No. And you got the wrong guy. And then he's still kind of watching, and another person comes by, and he goes, no, no, I think you are one of, you're one of his disciples. I saw you with Jesus. And Peter goes, no, you've got the wrong guy. Stop it. And then another person, he goes, no, no, I'm sure of it. I spoke to you when you were with Jesus. And Peter swears, I am not that man. Get away from me. No, I don't have a relationship with Jesus. And Jesus walks through the door. And Peter's, what we can only imagine, his face just hits the ground. And Jesus' words to them are, peace be with you. They wouldn't be my words. My words would be like, where were you guys? Like, what's up? Where were you guys? The only people who were there was the writer of this book, John, Jesus' best friend, and his mom, Mary. Because moms will go through hell or high water to be with their kids when they're suffering. And there she was watching him just kind of bleed out and <gasps> suffocate together to, get to death. As every time he pushed up on his feet just to gain another breath, caused him agony and pain as he pushed against it. <gasps> His mom watched him as he was dying, and his friend John was there with his arms around his mom. And one of the last things that Jesus does is he looks down at his mom, and he says, woman, mom, this is your new son. And John, this is your new mom. I want you guys to take care of each other. Jesus' last thoughts in the midst of his pain was not egocentric. Jesus' last thoughts in the midst of pain were us. But that's not how we process pain. That may be how the, process, the, the Son of God processes pain, but it's not how we process pain. We process pain differently. We look at Jesus and we go, no, 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 you can't die. You can't take that last breath. We can't take you off the cross. When the Roman soldier takes a spear and slams it into Jesus' side just to make sure that he's dead, and it pierces the pericardial sac of the heart, and blood and water flow outside of him. People were astonished. How did God's servant die? He was supposed to save us and rescue us and fix our circumstances, and their expectations just fell apart. It's never about evidence. It's always about expectations, and it always has been about expectations. But here's the thing, and here's the challenge. When we find ourselves kind of going through life and we, we hit one of those obstacles, one of those roadblocks in our life, and then we begin looking at God and go, why didn't you, why didn't you, why didn't you, why didn't you? What we need to recognize is that what pain does is it takes our whole world, which there are beautiful and good things in, but the one thing we're struggling with, the one thing that's very hard, and it can be a big thing, it can be a small thing, it reduces our entire world down to this one little pain. And in that moment, what we do now is we begin to see the entire world through this lens of pain. And as I interpret the world out here and I interpret the world in here, I've been divorced. I will never trust another woman again. I've been bankrupt. I will hold on to everything I have from this time on. I will never be generous. I will always be afraid. I will always be worried. And this is what we do. We take the entire world, we minimize it down, and we begin to look at it through a lens that is broken. Because 
pain makes us all about ourselves. So I was on this plane one day, and uh, you know, I love planes. I gotta tell you, I like getting on planes. I really do love getting on planes. They're, they're fantastic. What I really like about planes, because I sit in the back, because I can't afford to sit up front. And so I sit, I, I sit in the back of the plane, right? But it's more fun, because it gets a little bit more like, you know. And I, I love when the plane just goes, you know what I mean? Like, you know how you're flying, and all of a sudden it's whoosh. Like that stomach thing, I'm like, woo, you know? Without the theme park price, you know? Like, I love it. Like, it's awesome. It's great, right? And so I'm just kind of flying along. But there's a point of diminishing. What I love about it most is how other people hate to fly, I just love to watch them. You know, I'm a people watcher. And so when they're on there and it goes whoosh like this, I'm like, you know, and, 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 and everyone else is like, <laughs> you know, and I love it. It's so much fun. There is a point of diminishing return with it though, right? There's a point where like you think, okay, this is crazy. So we're flying one day, right? And I don't know why I feel safe in a t- metal tube flying 600 miles an hour at 20,000 feet, but I do. So I'm flying, we're flying through the air. There's about 300 of us flying on this plane. And all of a sudden, out of the middle of nowhere, right, the plane does this, whoosh, just like this, right? And you go, you know, you're exaggerating just for a story. I'm not. And here's why I know, right? Because how do you know it didn't go like this? And it just felt like this, right? Here's how I know. Because when the plane goes like this, whoosh, right? And now I'm looking. So when you're flat like this, you've got both overheads on each side of you, right? Because I'm in the middle, right? And all of a sudden now, whoosh, I'm looking at the overhead and it's down here and I feel the belt pulling me down. Like I'm going to, I'm just, it's awful, right? And so in that moment, I did what no one else on the plane did, right? I screamed out, ah, we're going to (laughs) die. Just like that, just like that. As loud as that, every single person on the entire plane, you know, the preacher who knows he's going to heaven, you know, who's secure in that. Like, I'm that guy. Like, I reach out. But here's the thing. I don't want to die in a fiery three-minute, oh, you know. Like, I don't want to do that. That's not how I'm going out. I'm going out really old with my grandchildren holding my hands. And I'm going to be like, oh, there's Jesus. And I'm just going to go. Like, that's it. That's how I'm going out. Like, that's it. I didn't want to die that way, so I just screamed out. It was terrible. And then, you know how pilots are, because they've got that fake voice they pop on. Because you can, I'm telling you, a plane does, so here's what he does. He goes like this. Now, he's supposed to compensate and go, right? But no, 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 this guy, I don't know, brand new, whatever he's doing. You know, so, so now I'm looking like this, and I'm on the other side, like, what's happening? And I'm just, I'm freaking out. It's terrible. And then the pilot comes on with pilot voice. He goes, well, ladies and gentlemen, we had a little bit of turbulence back there. I'm like, that's not turbulence, you know? And he goes, he goes, he goes, he goes, he goes, he goes, here's what happened. He goes, we got a little bit too close to the jet wash of another plane. And I'm like, that's like pilot 101. No buildings, no planes. Like just, that's how Goose died in the 80s. Doesn't, don't they know that? I'm telling you, it was like crazy. And the worst part of it, the worst part of it for me was this. The worst part of it was this. There was this kid sitting next to me, this little girl. She turns to me, she goes, like to sympathize with me. She goes to comfort me. She goes, it's okay. That was really scary. You know? And I was like, shut up, kid. You know, like, like I, was, I didn't say it out loud. I said it in my head, so I'm more holy. You know? But, but in that moment, like when that was happening, I wasn't thinking about, I wonder what Kelly has for dinner tonight. I was thinking we're going to die in a fiery, flipping, you know, spinning death ball. You know, I was thinking that the entire time. Why? Because my entire world went from out here, like I can't wait to go to this place that we're about to go to now. Oh my gosh, we're all going to die. You know, that's what happens. When we suffer and we go through hard things and our expectations are not met in this kind of way, whether it's expectations with our marriage or expectations with one another, or expectations with our businesses or our friendships, 
what ends up happening is that we begin to live out of these wounds. We live and define ourselves according to the brokenness of our expectations. So now I could, I could have easily said, I'm never getting on a plane again. Planes are dangerous and planes are bad and I, I've not had good luck and therefore I'm not going to do it. But I don't do that. Why? Because pain I recognize is egocentric. It turns everything in on me. And this is exactly what happens to Thomas. Time's up. <laughs> John 20, 24 and 25. Now Thomas, one of the 12 called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Why wasn't he with them? Here's why. Because Thomas took this particularly personal. He trusted Jesus with all of his heart. And when Jesus died, Thomas' dreams died with him. And, and the disciples said, let's gather together in the upper room. Let's hang out. Let's pray. Let's talk to the Father and see what's next. And Thomas is like, no, I'm not doing that. I'm on my own now. You guys go do that praying thing right now. You'll be 11 for now on because I'm on my own right now. And Thomas is suffering. He's struggling. He's on his own. And look at the scriptures. Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. So Jesus comes in. He says, peace be among you guys. Thomas wasn't present. And then they come back to Thomas and they say, listen, Thomas, Jesus came to us. We've seen the Lord. Here's what he says. Unless I see in his hands the mark of my nails, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Do you see what happened there, right? With his expectations right now dashed against the rocks, he looked at his brothers who he had witnessed Jesus do all of these miracles, including raising Jesus or raising Lazarus from the dead. What does he do right now? He says, you guys are liars. You have not seen that. I will not believe unless I see. Unless I see, I will not believe. He commits himself to disbelief. We've done that. And what happens inside of Thomas is it closes, off his, it closes off his eyes and it closes off his ears. And now he can no longer see and hear. And he won't do anything unless I see. What is your unless I see? I mean, what is your unless I see? Because what Thomas did was he put conditions on God. He said, God, unless I see these marks. I will not believe myself. What, what is your unless I see? Unless I see my marriage restored, I won't believe. Unless I see my business profitable, I won't believe in you, Jesus. Unless my child is given back to me, I will not believe. Unless my health problems are fixed, I will not believe. Unless I see my children on a good path, I will not believe. Unless I see my anxiety and depression relieved, I will not believe. Unless I see my work environment improve, I will not believe. Unless you send me a husband who loves me, I will not believe. Unless you send me a wife who loves me, I will not believe. What he did right there was made a conscious, volitional, willful choice to say, unless you jump through my hoops, I will not believe in you. It's a creature looking up at the creator of heaven saying, you better organize your life around me the way I want it. And it's very natural and it's very normal because pain focuses us egocentrically upon ourselves as if we are the center of the world. What is your unless I see? Unless I see my family fixed, my children on the right path, unless I see it work out. But I want to challenge you today. I want you to understand that God has been along all, all the time. He's been with you all along. 
See, for some of us, we had our expectations, and we knew what our life was supposed to look like. It was supposed to, I was supposed to walk this way, and as I'm walking this way, I've got this plan, I've got this plan, I've got this plan, I've got this plan. All of it's supposed to end in this great and wonderful place in which I die, holding my hands with my grandchildren, and I see Jesus, and I just walk out, and it's all wonderful. It's great. Until all of a sudden, we're walking through that life, and then we hit a wall. And then all now, all of a sudden, our expectations don't match up with the reality. We look at God, and we say, what's wrong with you? And unless you figure this out, God, I'm not going to follow you. It's natural. It's happened to us before. But here's what I just I prophetically want to speak into your life. Here it is. He's always been with you. He's on the other side of the obstacle. He's on the literal other side of death. And that's what resurrection is. When you find that wall and you're going through life and you hit it, he's on the other side saying, just push through because I'm on the other side. There's good ahead. Everything's going to work out in the long run. My plan is better than your plan. This plan that you laid out for your life, it's not going to work. It's not my plan for your life. I have a different plan and I promise it'll be harder at times. It'll be better at times, but it is ultimately the best plan for your life. Trust me because you have wonderful, joyful, credible things ahead of you. But some of us, we just get stopped in our tracks and we think, I can't go any farther because pain focuses us in on ourselves. So I was at the, um, I was working out the other day and uh, I was at the gym across the street, the RDV, and I swim over there after lunch. And uh, I was swimming and there was this guy swimming next to me and there's some great swimmers and some not so great swimmers there. This guy, he was just plodding along. He's and I was, swim- we, I was swimming for an hour, and he was, he was there, and he swam for the entire hour, pff, pff, just real slow. I, would go, I was going back and forth in front of him, back and forth, the other guy, back and forth, back and forth. This guy just, just chugging through the water. Well, not a great form, nothing, nothing wonderful, just never stopped the entire time, chugging through. Finally, he got to the end, he stopped, and I stopped at the same time because I wanted to talk to him because I'm super intrusive. And I said, uh, I said uh, hey, man, um, can I ask you a question? And he said, sure. And he said, I said, how old are you? He goes, I'm 80 years old. And I was like, you're 80 years old? He goes, yeah, surprised. Like, I go, you are so inspiring to me. Like, I just want you to know that. You are so inspiring to me. And I don't know that I can communicate the exact facial expression or his countenance, but it had something to do, it was something like shock and joy at the same time. But it was, it was this incredible moment where he was like, he was like, you're inspired by me? He goes, Why? as if nobody in his entire life had ever said a kind word to him. Like nobody had ever said, man, you, you're doing great. Like I'm encouraged by you. It's almost as if you kind of look back and it's like, I'd be so shocked. He goes, why are you inspired by me? He's like, I'm so slow. You boys are just going right past me, left and right. And I said, because I want to be 80 years old and I want to be swimming an hour in the pool. Nobody else that I've seen in here is 80 years old doing what you're doing. You're doing great. I said, it's inspiring to me. Thank you for being an example. And then I just started swimming again. It was really weird because I swam up and back pretty quick. And so I swam up and back and he was already gone. So I was like, I'm not saying, I'm just saying, you know? Like, I, I don't know what that was. He either like popped out of that water and started hopping away, you know, or something. It was really weird. So, 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 he, so I go into the locker room and there's this guy. He's 22 years old. And he kind of sits down next to me, and, he's, and we start talking, and he's very articulate. I said, what do you do for a living? He goes, I work for the Marriott. I said, that's a great company, man. You're going to do really well. That's awesome. Tell me about it. Your experiences, because you just got out of college. He goes, well, when I was in college, I did some internships. I did an internship in San Diego or uh, San Francisco, and I did one in New York City. 
And I've just kind of been all over the place. And he was very articulate, very, uh, very gregarious, easy to communicate with, a natural extrovert. I mean, a natural extrovert. And I said to him, I said, man, I, said, I just have to say, I think you're killing it in life. Like you are way ahead of 22-year-olds your own age. You know where you're going. You know, he gave up his girlfriend because he's focused on his career right now. And I said, man, you're just, you're, you're doing great. You're like, you're, you are, you're headed in the right direction. Good things are ahead of you, man. He was like, gosh, thanks so much. Like, was just, and me, I was just having a conversation with these two guys. But both of them were shocked that somebody would speak a good word into their hearts, into their lives. God has been with you your whole entire life. Some of you know that I grew up in a really abusive family. And my father used to, I remember some of my earliest memories about four or five years old, my dad just smacking me across the room and being violent against my mom. And we just like, we grew up in a really, really, really hate-filled place. It was ugly as hell. And we didn't grow up in a Christian home. Sometimes I think like if people who are not super religious come to church, they think everybody grew up in the same way, were taught Christianity by their parents and just kind of live that way. But many of us didn't grow up inside the church and many of us just found Jesus later because we realized that our expectations and the way that life was unfolding were not exactly in coordination and therefore we needed something bigger to look at, not just our own micromanaged kind of pain. And so for me, one day I was just at the house and my brother had uh, put a note in the Bible. Now this was, we had a Bible, but it's like a Bible some of you guys had growing up. You know, it's like this big. I mean, you know, I mean like, can you imagine bringing that sucker to church? You'd be like, what's up? I need a seat for my Bible, <laughs> you know? And, uh, and uh, it's just one of those Bible. And when you open it, it's like, you know, it's never been open before. You know, the pages are crisp and everything. And uh, so you op- I opened up this Bible. I don't even know why we had it, but there was a piece of paper in there and it was from my brother. I didn't realize it at the time. I kind of found out later, but he said in there, unless I see you reveal yourself to me, I will never open this book again. I was 12 years old at the time. My brother was, was eight years old. And I think my brother, just in a moment of reaching out to God because of the nastiness of the environment that he grew up in as well, the kind of anger and the whole hatefulness, the brokenness of the marriage and all that kind of stuff that was up and down, real insecure kind of world. Something inside of him reached out to God and because of his circumstances and because of his expectations, and I've never talked to him about this, but I'm just guessing because of his expectations, you know, things weren't working out the way that he thought they were and they certainly weren't working out the way that I thought that they, they should work out. I actually thought that you should have a dad who cared about you and loved you and would be somebody who was supportive. But the reality was not that. And so he said, I will never open this book again unless I see you reveal yourself to me. And the cool thing about that was that God, many, many, many years later, just a regular Christian like you, reached out to me when my life was just falling apart and said, hey, I think God has more for your life. And and I was open to it. Why? I was open to it because my expectations of how my life was unfolding were nowhere near the reality of how it was unfolding. And I said, I said, I said, I'll listen. I'll, I'll, I'll just take the blinders off. I'll commit to whatever you need me to commit to. I just want to take steps toward Jesus. And I did. And it was a beautiful thing because just like a, a stone that you throw in water and it ripples in all directions. Here's what I learned. I did. I learned that. I learned that as God. As God changes my present, he's also saying that he's going to change my future. Like the people who committed themselves to Jesus today, they're going to heaven now. Not because they're good or they're better than you. No, no, no. They're going to heaven simply because they say, Jesus, I need you. I want you in my life. That's all it is. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved, the Bible says. And so, so I said, you know, I'm in. 
And then it's secured for me a future. And I know now that because great things are happening for me in the future, it doesn't matter what's happening with me right now. These momentary light afflictions are creating for me an eternal way to glory. One day I'm going to be okay because God's going to come and get me. You know, it's, it's great, but here's what I didn't realize at the time. That when you throw that stone in the water and it begins to ripple, it ripples in all directions. It also ripples back in my past. And I remember the first time that God spoke to me and said, hey, listen, son, I'll be your dad. I'll watch over you. I will guide you. And watch this, watch this, watch this. I've always been with you. You have never been alone. When your father smacked you around and slammed you against the wall and started choking you, I was right there. I was your next breath. I was your mom standing between you and pushing him away. I was the 12-year-old kid that came along and caught you crying. And when you told him that story, he said, it's going to be okay. That's some crazy drama, but it's going to be okay. That was God talking to me all through my past, watching over me, guiding me and leading me so that I wouldn't have to spend my entire life defined by my brokenness, defined by the silliness of the way in which I grew up. God has been with you your whole life. And maybe you've just not identified it. Maybe you've not seen it. You just thought it was somebody else being encouraging. But when the divorce happened and your friends rallied around you and said, this is not the end. You'll find love again and it's going to be okay. It's Jesus in the background whispering, say this. Be there for her. Be there for him. He's been here all along. And I, I could just close it out right now and say, peace be with you. And it would be great. And we go out and go, oh, that was inspiring. But I think it requires more than that. I think it requires us to respond. To say, I I want what Jesus has. I can continue to walk blindly while God is with me. But I want to open my eyes to the reality around me. And in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to cross that line and wake up to the reality. That God has always been with you. He loves you and he wants to be with you forever. Uh, five, uh, Five years, this time goes by. When my daughter was five years old, I taught her how to ride a bike. And so I put training wheels on the bike, right? And so she was an expert at the training wheels, right? She'd ride that bike and it'd go really fast and she'd go on two wheels, woo, you know? And she'd be like, dad, I've kind of got this thing mastered. It's awesome. Like, check me out. I'm so good on my bike, woo, you know? And it was awesome. It was great. Um, but one day I said to her, I think it's time for you to take your training wheels off. I think it's time. Let's just take them off right now. And she goes, okay, daddy, let's do that. So I took the training wheels off, right? And I said, all right, what we're going to do is we're going to do the same thing. You're going to get on. You're going to pedal like you normally do. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be behind you, and I'm going to hold on to the seat, right? I'm just going to hold on to the seat behind you. I'm going to walk, I'm going to walk beside you, but I'm going to hold the seat. And when I did that, she was unsteady. She was wavering a little bit, you know? And she was like, don't let go, Daddy. Don't let go. Don't let go. And so I'm like, I won't let go. I won't let go, right? And so we just got, did that over and over and over again. Lost like 30 pounds. And it went over and over, like over and over and over and over again. Just kind of did it over and over again. And then one day she kind of got real stable. And I said, I think I'm going to let go here, honey, but I'm going to be with you. And so I let go, right? I just like for a second, I just let go. And she did one of these, you know, because I was in her blind side. I was where she couldn't see. She did one of these. And as soon as she did that, she lost her balance and boom, fell on the thing, scraped her knee up, a little blood. But before she could even, like she screamed out, daddy, I was already, she was already in my arms. I couldn't take her suffering away from her. I couldn't take the pain because I don't have like magic pills to take away the pain. But what I could do was I could reinforce the idea that her father had her in his arms and no more harm would come to her. 
this is it. This is how your father has been with you. He's been with you your whole life. He's behind the seat going, I got you, I got you, I got you. I'm going to let you go. Oh, you fell down. I'm still here. I got you. But the problem is for many of us, he's been in our blind side. And we just we look around and we don't see him. And we think, where is he? And he's right here. I can't see him, but he's right there. John, chapter 20, verses 26 through 28 is how this ends. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Remember, the first time he comes, Thomas was not with them. He wasn't with them. But this time, Jesus comes specifically for Thomas. Although the doors were locked, Jesus' trick, Jesus came in and stood among them. He likes it. It's weird. Okay, I'm not going to lie. Like, I'd just be like, hey, guys, it's Jesus. But he walks through the door. Then he said to Thomas, hey, Thomas, put your fingers here. Put them right here. See my hands? Put out your hand. Place it in my side. And then he commands him, Thomas, do not disbelieve anymore. What this tells me and what this tells us is that belief is not about necessarily evidence, about our expectations, but belief is not a feeling. It's a choice of the will. It's a choice of the mind. It's like when we fall in love. I hate the phrase fall in love because I feel like people say, oh, I can fall in and out of love. No, you can't. No, no, no. That's not because you don't fall in love. You choose to be in love. You choose to continue to have a second date and a third date and a fourth date. You choose to give your heart to somebody. You choose to love somebody. And every single day of your marriage, if you've been married for more than 15 minutes, you've been disappointed, right? So if you've been married for more than 15 minutes, here's what you understand. Every day I get up and choose her. Every day I get up and choose him. Every day I get up and choose him again and again and again. And that's what love is. Love is the constant choice that guides our decisions. Love is that choice. And that's what it is to be in a relationship with Jesus. Eight days later, his disciples were uh, inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. It's fascinating to me what he does here. There's nothing in the story that actually says that Thomas puts his hands where Jesus' wrists, where, where the nails went in, or in his side. There's, the, the Bible doesn't record that in any of, the, any of these stories, any of the Bible stories that talk about Thomas. So why did Jesus do it? Here's what I think Jesus was saying. Thomas, I had to tear down this body. I had to die so that something could be born again on the inside of you. It was just a week ago, and it just decimated me. I couldn't believe how much, because I've never even been there. But Notre Dame, the cathedral in Paris, I was sitting with one of the pastors, and I got this little, just this, this little image, this little video, and flames were shooting out of the roof of it. It was like 10 minutes after it happened. 60-foot flames shooting out of the top of this, and I thought, there's no way that this is going to end well. And I thought to myself, God, it's Holy Week. Easter's coming. Thousands of people are going to be gathered inside that church to worship you. Why would you tear it down? Why would you burn it down? Why would you allow it? You have all the power in the world. What's up? And unless I see an answer for this, I'm going to be really ticked. Why? And then I just started thinking about it more and more. And here's what I realized. Just like Jesus had to be torn down in order for something to be reborn, the cathedral had to be torn down in order for something better to be born. Instead of being an empty museum most of the time, this is what it was afterwards. One half, one half of one percent 
of people in Paris, of people in France are Christian. One half of one percent. And there were tens of thousands of people outside singing hymns to God. While the church would have been filled with thousands, there were tens of thousands out there singing and praying and thanking God and asking, can we rebuild? And it opened hearts and it opened minds and scales dropped and people started taking steps toward Jesus that they wouldn't have if the outside wasn't burned down so that the inside could be made new. And what God does sometimes is he allows the outside to be torn down in our life so that the inside can be reborn. And I'm going to ask you to be reborn right now. I'm going to ask you to take a step. I'm not going to embarrass you. I don't want you to come forward and come to the altar. We don't even have one of those. So, so, so like, I, I want you to come forward and do anything. Here's, here's what I want you to do. I simply want you, we're going to have everybody in just a minute, close their eyes, put their heads down. I'll, all I want is for you to look me in the face, right? It's just going to be you and me, and it's you saying to me, here's what I want, and this is what the commitment is. We have this word called repentance in the church, and Christians get this word wrong all the time. And we believe that repentance is changing our behavior. No, 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 it's not. That's a word called metanoia. You can look it up later. I know you won't. And, uh, and, uh, but, but watch this, watch this. But the, the word repentance actually means change my mind. To change my mind. It means that I choose to stop disbelieving because of the egocentric pain that I've gone through and the, back, and the lack of expectations that I've had fulfilled in my life. I choose not to operate out of that brokenness. Instead, God, I'm going to trust that the plan that you have for my life is better for the one that I would have orchestrated for my life. This plan that's going to have hardship and difficulty and trials and tribulations that's going to end in glory, this is the plan that I want. I want Jesus in my life. I want a relationship with you. I want to build my relationship with God. If you've never done that before, I want to invite you to do that right now in just a moment. So here's what I want. I'm going to just, if you're, I'm going to start over here and then I'm going to walk across, okay? I'm going to start over here and I just want you to look up at me and when you do, I'm going to, I'm going to say yes. And then you can close your eyes. I'm not going to do anything else other than pr- pu- uh, publicly pray for you up here. Okay, so here, here's, here's what I want you to do, right? Everybody close your eyes, and then I'm going to pray for those who are about to make this commitment. We've, we've, we had, you know, we had 51 people make this commitment in the last service. Just to put context to that, okay? Here's, here, here we go. So let me pray. Father, I know that it is a challenging thing to change one's mind because it's like letting go of something old to embrace something new. And that's hard for us sometimes, God especially when we've had our expectations dashed against the rocks, when we thought our life was supposed to go a certain way and you allowed something to happen that we did not expect and we did not like. But God, on the other side of that, you are there because you've always been there. You've always been with us. You've been guiding us, watching us, and you've just been in our blind side. We've not been able to see you. So I pray, Jesus, that right now you would do what only you can do, open the hearts and minds of people. Father, help us to be able to see when we couldn't see before, to be able to hear what we could not hear before. And let us, like me, God, who started this journey 30 years ago, let us start an entirely new journey with you.